A good Tuesday morning to you and welcome to this May 11th edition of Real Talk, of course, presented each and every day by our good friends at Bitcoin. Well, the presenting sponsor of this show, of course, crypto is taking off right now in a number of different contexts, in a number of different capacities. If you're if you're at an entry level of understanding like me, if, if, if you're if you're hanging around in the shallow end of the pool, when it comes to where you're at and understanding things like blockchain and crypto and what's the difference between Ethereum and Dogecoin and Bitcoin and oh man, Bitcoin Well is a great place to start. They're actual real human beings. Do things like answer the phone and reply to emails and help you along your crypto journey. You'll find all their contact information, details on the company based proudly out of Edmonton, Alberta under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in about uh, 10 minutes on this show, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to check in with uh, Professor Dwayne Winsick out of Carleton University. Uh, a lot of people have questions about Bill C-10. Uh, what's the deal there? And we're going to look into it depending on, on who you talk to, whether you're talking to uh, whether you're talking to, uh, you know, political opponents of the federal liberal government. For example, uh, the conservative party of Canada, Michelle Rempel Garner, an MP, has been speaking out loudly uh, against this as, as a form of censorship. Uh, you may have some questions that we'd love to. And of course, we will be keeping an eye on the live chat right now. That's a great way to, to sort of submit questions through the course of an interview. Producer Sarah Hoyles will be keeping an eye on that. And of course, also our hashtag Real Talk RJ powered by Park Power is a great place for you to get a comment or a question on our radar as well. Uh, we're going to be talking today about the Alberta school curriculum. Uh, a, a, a The director of our body image research lab going to be a fascinating area of study i'm sure for us to dive into dr shelly russell mayhew will talk to us uh about why she believes the curriculum is actually detrimental to body image for young kids i was reading the the open letter that was released back on april 21st check this out an open letter to all alberta parents of school-aged children this is from a doctor at the university of calgary quote if i was to write a curriculum with the intent of having children preoccupied with their weight and shape, it would be this curriculum. It is ironic that a draft curriculum that focuses so diligently on personal responsibility for health outcomes may be responsible for damaging our children's body image. That's a hell of a thing to read, most especially if you're a parent, a parent that wants the best for your kid. For your young learners, and I, I imagine this conversation will be fueled by your perspectives. That's part of the beauty of doing this thing live. We're also going to take a look into public transit across Canada. Uh, James Wilt is a, a journalist and author that's done a deep dive onto this. It's, it's a great feature, in particular, on microtransit. And we're going to get into what the implications are. Do Canadians in big cities want public transit? Really, do they? These are the types of questions that candidates for city council, candidates for mayor in different Canadian cities would have you ask. Transit conversations are big and in cities that have that have experienced rapid expansion, rapid growth, uh, the development of of suburban neighborhoods where public transit maybe hasn't kept up. And, and now they're doing their best to get up to speed on that. 
I'm looking at you, Calgary. I'm looking at you, Edmonton, and other Canadian cities on the Maritimes. They've been having issues. Even Toronto, with its robust transit network, still really struggling to make sense of the dollars and cents. It's always a loaded conversation when you talk about transit. It's always a subsidized public service. But through the course of this pandemic, public transit has has taken even bigger blows. And so I think this will be a great conversation with James Wilt. That's coming up in eh, about an hour's time. We're going to be talking later this week about some of some of the stories that are making international news, including what's going on in Palestine. And, and, and we'll have an announcement on on a guest booking coming up. That's going to be in the next few days here on the show. And of course, Sarah Hoyles is keeping an eye on all the other stories making news, including yesterday, Alberta's justice minister, Casey Madu, a pretty inflammatory Facebook post in response to a constituent And it's got people talking like big time. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but Alberta's justice minister responds to a constituent by the name of Sherry and Sherry's frustrated. And he says, hey, believe me, Sherry's frustrated with lockdowns and restrictions. And this is part of the dance that conservative governments across Canada, including Jason Kenney's government in Alberta, have had to do. They've got people ticked off. They're not doing enough. And they got people ticked off that they're doing too much. And Minister Madu responds to this Albertan by the name of Sherry and says, hey, listen, I appreciate your frustrations. Believe me, it's been heartbreaking to see Albertans die from this virus. I've agonized over the hardship and sufferings of small businesses due to the pandemic restrictions. Here's the thing, though. I'm going to skip a whole bunch of paragraphs that are that are kind of quite normal, quite, re- you know, I mean, they're they're what you might expect from an elected official you know, comparing their restrictions or or their decisions with other governments and other jurisdictions. He talks about Australia and New Zealand and and Taiwan closing land and air borders and, and talks about the federal liberal government in Canada not doing that. Not wrong. Here's where it goes a bit sideways. Says, I agree that the majority of people who contact this virus would make a full recovery. In my humble opinion, though, that's not a reason to not do everything we can to avoid the loss of lives of fellow Albertans. It is not a reason to wait until we overwhelm our health care system, then create public panic and see Albertans in field and makeshift hospitals gasping for breath because we've run out of ventilators, manpower, etc. My point is that I don't think it will be responsible to simply wait until we have a disaster on our hands. That's what the NDP, the media and the federal liberals were looking for and want. We simply couldn't allow that to happen. That from not some crazy or drunk guy on Facebook, that from Alberta's justice minister. It would not be responsible to wait until we have disaster on our hands. That's what the NDP, the media and the federal liberals are looking for and want. Now, as I tweeted yesterday, I'm not even sure that this deserves a response. I I, I think that it's obviously a highly partisan comment. I think it's a deplorable comment to suggest that any elected official, let alone members of the media, want disaster to strike want to see people gasping for breath on ventilators in understaffed field hospitals do i really have to comment on on whether or not any elected official in canada actually wants that here's the thing though 
Minister Madu is speaking from what you might describe as somewhat of a vulnerable position. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you take a look at Alberta's numbers right now, they're bad. They're really bad. Like we're number one. We're number one in all the wrong categories, cases, hospitalizations, new transmission. Alberta is dominating the national news when it comes to how we have struggled with getting a handle on this pandemic. The story over this past weekend was that law enforcement is is finally getting to a position where they have to cuff and take into custody people who refuse to follow public health orders and organize large gatherings like church services. And now you've got all kinds of deplorables coming forward, like this Kevin J. Johnson guy who's who's running for mayor down in Calgary. He's he's the guy that's been charged and tried and in some circumstances convicted. Things like hate speech, facing assault charges. The guy's a, a bad dude. Former POTUS might describe him as a bad hombre, and it would fit. He sold racist branded coffee. I mean, the guy has threatened the lives of Alberta healthcare workers. You think I'm kidding? Google his name. You'll see right now how the Calgary police are working with other agencies to try to find their way around municipal election rules that are going to grant this guy because he's running for mayor in the city of Calgary. The rules show that he gets access to the voter lists. He gets access to the names and addresses of every Calgarian, a guy that's threatened to arm himself and show up at the houses of Alberta health workers. These are the types of people that are showing up in support of others that are being carted away, that are being arrested by law enforcement for for continuing to encourage dozens or hundreds or in some cases, thousands of people to gather like that rodeo a couple of weekends ago. So Alberta right now, while we are collectively doing everything we can to get a handle on this and to get things under control, is not under control. And so Minister Maddow's comments come at a pretty interesting time. Now, I could sit here and huff and puff and take personal offense. I could take personal offense at at how the minister has implied that the media wants to see people struggle, but... You watch Real Talk. You listen to this podcast. You download the show. You know that's an idiotic thing to say, right? You know that members of the media, I'm not going to sit here and clap for everybody and pat everybody on the back, but there have been (laughs) dozens, if not hundreds, of professionals, journalists, presenters, statisticians, producers, editors, that have, over the past 14 months or so, gone above and beyond the call of duty in many different ways to ensure that every single day the stories of sick Canadians are told the stories of Canadian heroes are told that governments are held accountable sometimes that makes governments uncomfortable sometimes it makes them a little bit ornery and sometimes it makes them say stupid things like Alberta's justice minister did yesterday he owes the official opposition an apology He probably owes the federal government an apology. He owes members of the media an apology. But if you were to make a list of the groups and organizations that Alberta's justice minister is least likely to apologize to, it would probably be those three, maybe even in that order. The official opposition, the federal liberals and the media. So that's not coming. 
But Albertans will demand better. And if you were on social media at all yesterday, you know that Minister Madu was taking his lumps. It's not the first time that he's floated some curious commentary out there. I saw some people wondering if maybe he's kind of the trial balloon guy for the for the provincial government. Is Minister Madu the one that that that, that they have float ideas out there? Hey, why don't why don't we why don't we suggest that the media and, and our political opponents want to see people struggling, overwhelmed, dying on ventilators? Why don't we float that idea and sort of see how it goes? And if it flops, Minister, thank you for your service. Thank you for falling on your sword. What I thought was the most telling comment, and if you follow me on Twitter at Ryan Jesperson, you already know this. What I found to be the most telling comment is what Minister Madu says to Sherry a little bit later on in his post. He says, while I hear the anger and disappointment of our people, I will continue to urge calm, patience, and cooperation as we near the end of this pandemic. I ask that we don't tear ourselves down and hand over Alberta to the NDP. I ask that we don't tear ourselves down and hand over Alberta to the NDP. Those are not the words of a confident cabinet minister. As a matter of fact, it's pretty unusual to see a high profile senior cabinet minister talking about handing things over to the NDP. Right. The typical bluster that you hear from this government, most especially Premier Jason Kenney, centers around the NDP's term as an accidental government. Right. Their job killing carbon tax. Right. The fact that Albertans experimented with the one and done Rachel Notley NDP. To have a cabinet minister ask that we. Don't tear ourselves down and hand things over to the NDP, I think, is something we can read into a little bit with regards to the psyche of where this government's at. Minister Madu, for context, if you're listening to us elsewhere in Canada or outside of Canada, you may not realize Minister Madu is the only United Conservative MLA in the entire city of Edmonton. He won a nail biter in, in southwest Edmonton. And you got to wonder if he's starting to take a look at his own political fortunes looking ahead to 2023. It's an eternity from now. A lot's going to happen between now and then. And you wonder what the scuttlebutt sounds like around that cabinet table. You wonder if they're spending more time checking their rearview mirror than they were before. Polling suggests that that may very well be the case. We'll pick up this conversation as the show moves on. I wanted to just very quickly remind you that we're very excited to be partnering with the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. There's six of those locations. And right now, they want us to let you know they're stirring the pot a little bit. They're stirring a pot because the peanut butter parfaits right now are available for $1.99. That's way less than the sticker price. It's way less than you're going to pay at any other Dairy Queen. It's why you want to take your business to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Did, did I hear you buzzing yesterday, briefly buzzing about a visit to Dairy Queen, one of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, Sarah Hoyles, that you made over the weekend? Well, I had to. All this talk of delicious, delicious Dairy Queen. I had, I, I couldn't help myself. What did you go with? Well, I am so my favorite. I'm so partial to the score oh, blizzard. The blizzard, the score blizzard. And then as I'm driving up, the the person in the window says, "Hey, would you like a pup ice cream cone?" 
Oh, for your dog. A pup cone. And I was like, uh, yeah, I would. Did you actually give it to your dog or did you just did crush I eat it, it yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll take cones for the dogs, the kids, and everybody. Then I'll just crush them all myself. No, see, I'm I'm altruistic. So the dog got the, the pup. Are you a score blizzard gal every time or do you switch it up? You mix it up. That's a loaded question. I don't know if I okay. I feel comfortable revealing this is that. Like, I feel like I'm doing psychological analysis here. <laughs> Interesting stuff. All right, let's get to our first guess. How much do you know about Bill C-10? Um, if you're like me, not much. We know that the federal liberals are, are, are eager to see this pass. There's been a whole bunch of amendments. Minister Gibo doesn't seem, at least upon, let's call it cross-examination on shows like CBC Power and Politics, doesn't seem to maybe totally understand the bill. And so maybe you can't blame Canadians for feeling the same way. The official opposition MPs like Michelle Rempel-Garner say it's they're crushing freedom of speech. They're going to try to regulate. Justin Trudeau wants to regulate what you can say on social media. Other people are saying that shows like Real Talk could be really affected by this legislation. And then liberal MPs like Mark Gerritsen released a video. He calls Michelle Rempel's concerns fake news. He says, hey, listen, this, this is just making sure that all the big online players, the online giants play by the same rules as traditional broadcasters. We need to figure this out from a nonpartisan source. And we're grateful that Carleton University professor Dwayne Winsick, who tweets at Media Morphus, has agreed to join us this morning. Professor, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time. All right. Well, great to be here, Ryan. How do C10? How, how would you explain this to the average Canadian that just wants to know: Is it true Justin Trudeau is going to going to limit or crack down on or censor what I can say on Facebook or Twitter? No, China's or Canada's not becoming China overnight because of uh, C10. The first uh, real uh, motive of C10 is not to regulate uh, Canadians' uh, speech. And to, you know, basically deprive us of our fundamental liberties as Canadians and so on and so forth. There are some uh, indirect uh, consequences of this bill that I think are uh, unacceptable. And there are many elements of this bill that I think in the end, when you add them up, we should ask the government to kill the bill and go back to the drawing board and start all over and get back to what its real purpose is, which is to establish some parity between the online streaming services like your Netflix's, Amazon Prime's, Disney Plus, and Crave TV, our Canadian operator, and their offline counterparts. And their offline counterparts, to get a little technical with you, should not be considered your conventional broadcast television and radio stations, but rather your video on demand services that you can get right now from your your cable and satellite or IPTV uh, provider, all right, and the CanCon rules and contributions that those entities make that are actually quite low. But the idea here is to create a level playing field between video on demand services, a catalog of titles of your favorite films and television, uh, and to make those basically subject to the same rules that video on demand services in Canada are already provided, but the government's made a mess of things. 
So, Dwayne, what are we ta- when we when we talk about leveling the playing field? Are we talking about things like? And, and I don't want to take for granted that maybe doesn't everybody doesn't realize that you know terrestrial radio stations in Canada or traditional television broadcasters, um, you know, have to be aware of things like CanCon, Canadian content, a certain amount of the music that they play, or whatever ha- you know whatever content they push out has to be Canadian or connected to Canada. Um, I, we, we've talked to national newspaper spokespersons, talked to a representative from the Toronto Star maybe four or six weeks ago about how they want to see changes to advertising models they want to see some accountability there when it comes to facebook i mean is this what we're talking about where the discrepancies or where the uneven playing field exists yeah well you see just that list of things that you brought down and the list of people that you talk to reveals the heart of the problem here it's everybody's freaking wish list is buried uh in the hopes and dreams around this bill and some of the things are actually in the bill other things are not the bill itself has become a bit of a Rorschach inkblot test in which everybody pours their hopes and dreams or their worst nightmares and fears. And unfortunately, Gibo, the minister in charge, has done a very, very poor job on explaining it. And I'm afraid they have tried to tuck things in this bill that ought not to be there. They need to clean it up and they should just directly focus on, look, if it looks like a television service, it walks like a television service and it quacks like a television service, then we're going to regulate it like a television service. We don't care if it comes in on the back of your cable provider, uh, the internet or a turtle. But if it's TV, we're going to regulate it like TV. Okay. So does the federal government have the tools to do this? I mean, is the CRTC equipped to actually be able to oversee this in, in, in robust fashion? I mean, you've you've been keeping it. Maybe you can explain this uh, for our audience members. You, you've been keeping a list of more than 100 items uh, when it comes to, as you describe them, liberal capitalist democracies trying to stay on top of digital platforms and Internet regulation. It sounds to me like everybody's lagging behind here. Everybody's trying to play catch up and they're trying to play catch up rather quickly. And so we've got this big bunch of public inquiries taking place around the world. That list now, like I said, my head was spinning. So I started to write it down and we've got a hundred items on that list. Almost, you know, most of them are from the last three to four or five years. Uh, Canada, the United States, throughout Europe, Australia, we're hearing a lot about. So everybody's in on this game and they are trying to sort it out. And we do have some good touchstones that we can use for guidance. And the CRT or the the Liberal government, to my mind, the easiest thing for them to get themselves out of this mess would be to withdraw Bill C-10 and look over to the Europeans who have something called the Audiovisual Media Services Directive that was last updated in 2018. And it's a very clean approach that basically says, look, if you're an over-the-air, over-cable uh, uh, broadcast service, uh, you know, you have a linear scheduled programming service, here's the rules. If you look like a video-on-demand service, that is, you know, you offer a catalog of services, then um, this is the set of requirements that you're going to have to meet. And then finally, it draws a line between kind of commercial and professional services that it covers according to those two different standards and then amateur or user generated content, which says these are not covered. And this is what Bill C-10 doesn't do. And because it doesn't draw that hard line between the kind of the professional, commercial, industrial television services and people's everyday cat videos, as we're hearing, um, then we get all these concerns. Uh, Professor, we're, we're kind of in between um, global, national and everybody's cat videos. 
we're we're kind of in this gray area as a digital online independent streaming show. Uh, we have sponsored content. We have advertisers. We're an incorporated company. Obviously, we have a staff. We carry insurance, all those types of things. But we're not yeah. really in a position where you would say it would be sensible to to regulate us in the same way you might a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, I asked this question out of pure selfishness. But yeah. where might real talk be affected or how might it be affected by this legislation as it stands right now? So one, I don't think I can give you a crystal clear answer, but I do think I can give you the following answer, okay? So one, I don't think as a standalone provider, a standalone podcast, that Bill C-10 is seeking you out. That's the way descriptively I think things are. Normatively, in terms of how I think the world should be, I don't think you as an individual podcaster should be covered by broadcasting standards. You should be covered by the standards of individual speech or the standards that apply uh, to the press, which means there's no special regulator or no special law governing uh, what you can say other than copyright laws and criminal laws. Now here's where things get a little bit mucky. I think if you were to make your podcast available through say Google Play or the Apple App Store or it was put available through YouTube Premium or something like that or Amazon, right? Then Amazon or Google, uh, Apple and so forth, they would become responsible for your content, all right? And there's where the rub lies, okay? And it rubs in two different directions. On the negative side, on the constraint of speech side, if Apple, Amazon, and Google are treated as broadcasters that are responsible for your content, they got to make sure that you don't go off the farm uh, over there, Ryan, and get them in trouble, all right? So they're going to be policing the fences and putting some electric, you know, fence, some electric uh, wiring around the fence to make sure that Ryan doesn't go off the farm, all right? And so they're going to be indirectly regulating what Ryan has to say. Therein lies a serious, significant problem. We have a large corporate actor that is now going to be deputized by the government to regulate the private speech of an individual like yourself. That is a huge problem. But let's now flip this around so it's not just this one-sided, oh my God, the state is deputizing censorship you know, obligations to Amazon to crack down on crazy man Ryan, all right? The flip side of that is, and here's the good part, all right, which is Amazon, Netflix, Bell, Shaw, we got to remember it covers the Canadian companies uh, too, Apple, these things are big black boxes, all right? And Ryan, you basically give up your podcast when you hand it over to Google Play or to Apple's App Store. And wouldn't it be nice if, for example, you could take a look at the inside of their black box, open up the kimono, so to speak, to see that everything's on the up and up with respect to, hey, we actually did do 1,258 downloads of your app over the whole last year. You thought you did 10,000? No. Right. If we had a regulator that required information disclosure that made Amazon, Bell, Netflix, whoever's operating these kind of these hosting platforms for your podcast had to give a bare minimum level of download information, some more information on the subscribers that you as a podcast maker need and would find very beneficial in terms of how you craft your work. 
All right. I think these are fantastic. I also think it would be a great idea for a government regulator. I don't think the CRTC is very well equipped by disposition, by leadership or by its resources to take on this role. But I think it would be great for the Canadian government and policymakers to basically know how many subscribers are there to Netflix, to Amazon, to Ryan's podcast and to all podcasts in Canada? And what are the revenues? And then we can make some policy because, Ryan, maybe you're working way too hard for not enough money. And yes. we all know that culture and news are public goods that people aren't willing to pay the full freight for. So maybe, Ryan, you need the public purse to come in and help shore up the distance between what a market should pay for the high quality value that you deliver and the fact that, you know what? People, when it comes to culture, are cheap and are going to free ride on their neighbor, right? And they're not going to pay, right? So if the neighbor can build, you know, the fence for the cattle and you don't have to, well, hell, let them do that, right? So, you know, there's a lot of potential good in here. And this is why I think we need to have the grown-up talk that's informed by a real understanding of communication industries, communication industries history, communication technology, public goods, policy, this dreck about, you know, comparisons, and this is what we're seeing from the conservatives and so on, um, you know, with this dreck about, you know, a, a censorship bill and the Trudeau government cracking down on Canadians, Canada becoming China, this is all nonsense, complete and utter nonsense. But the flip side of that is, and there's so many flip sides here, one can get disoriented because you're doing too much flipping to make sense of this stuff. The flip side is, is that the government and the bureaucrats in Gatineau have been captured by domestic industrial interests who wrap themselves in the high-minded rhetoric of culture and in the nationalist flag to make anybody else who's critical of this book they'll look like a fucking, excuse me, Philistine. Okay? You're, you're allowed to say that on this really show, you know. Abhorrent. Yeah. You know, last night we had the minister come out and talk about, you know, a massive disinformation campaign impugning independent scholars like myself and others for being somehow, on, you know, being bankrolled by Googles and Facebooks and so on of the world to sow disinformation and confusion around important public policy matter. Well, that just ain't the case, okay? I haven't received a penny from any single player in this um, uh, this particular context, okay? And in almost all of my work, unless I've otherwise made it explicit through a public disclosure that I have been paid. This is, uh, first of all, uh, I need another 90 minutes with you, first of all, because <laughs> you're blowing the doors off about a million things that we need to talk about. Um, I mean, OK, so even I, I want to revisit this is this is going to bump us off. I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you, what does this mean for the average person that, that does just yeah. want to post cat videos? And maybe your answer is just going to be nothing or, or, or little, if, if nothing at all. But I want to go back when you say, you know, you know, maybe maybe us doing this independent podcast or providing a service for public discourse and commentary. And we can demonstrate that, you know, we've, we've got literally thousands and thousands of subscribers across our platforms, podcasts, YouTube, et cetera. We've got this many people getting our blah, 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 blah. We provide a public service. We can pump our tires. We can sell ourselves. We can make a strong case to a federal regulator or somebody else. And then there may be some formula by which we receive some sort of an equity like like you might have like a luxury tax like they play in baseball, some sort of a 
a profit sharing scenario. This is starting to get in, in into that 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 area. I did, I worked for a broadcasting giant before this at Chorus, and they they took big issue with that uh, that federal government six hundred million dollar media fund, and, and executives at Chorus were so quick to point out we received corporate directives that we were clearly messaging that we were receiving none of that bailout, none of the six hundred million was going to us. Nobody wanted to touch it. The big broadcasters didn't want any part of it because it, it created ethical quandaries or at least the appearance of such, especially around the last federal election. I was getting comments. You can imagine, Professor, how many comments I was getting from my critics that I was on the take and Trudeau was putting money in my pocket, not to mention what I'm getting from George Soros, but I digress. I'm not sure that that's a good thing or not. I mean, don't get me wrong. As an entrepreneur, I'd love a little cash infusion, but at what cost? You know what I mean? Optically and otherwise. Yep. Absolutely fair, you know, fair comment, fair questions, right? And, you know, are you on a payroll estate and therefore, you know, subject to the pa- the puppet master's wishes? Um, you know, these are real legitimate concerns. People uh, should have them. Uh, at the same time, people should, um, you know, look under their beds and see that there isn't a bogeyman ready to rip their heart and freedoms out from their very souls. Okay, so what does this um, mean, Dwayne? What does this mean? What does this mean for the average person? N- not not somebody that's got a big show, or not somebody that works for, you know, whatever CTV. What does this mean for your average Canadian? Yeah, let's put it this way. You know, the other day. The missing and murdered Indigenous women um, had a hashtag uh, that was getting some pretty good attention on Instagram, by my understanding. Okay, and it was a special day to commemorate um, the experience of missing uh, and murdered Indigenous women uh, in Canada. And their uh, all of their posts to Instagram, which are the equivalent of everybody else's everyday people's posts to Instagrams. You know, like my daughters, like my wives, like their friends, and so on, like my students. And it was taken down. All right. And they had no recourse. There was nobody to call from Facebook that owns Instagram in Canada to figure out why was this taken down. Okay. We have some ideas, some conjecture as to why it was taken down. Probably because it mixed violence, sex, and tales of rape. All right. Things that would trigger the artificial intelligence that's used to flag content that's troublesome and ought to be taken down. That's probably what happened. Okay. But there was nobody at Facebook to take the call. All right. And so on a very important day around a very important topic that this country needs to come to terms with. All right. We had a, you know, a, as I call the vampire squid from Silicon Valley, Facebook owned Instagram yanking down content. So everyday Canadians should be really concerned about unaccountable corporations regulating Canadian speech and taking it down with no insight, no mechanisms of accountability for corporate power that really exercises influence over Canadian speech and no ability by force of the law, having a democratic state, right? We have good states and bad states. A democratic state is supposed to be a good state whose legitimate laws and regulatory and legal institutions can swing in behind Canadians, behind citizens, and get redress and create justice, all right? And in this case, there was no redress. There was no justice. There was only ham-fisted corporate takedown of important speech to Canadians, all right? A bill like this 
all right? Insofar that discovery didn't mean something stupid and uh, um, gag-worthy, like we're going to make Canadian content float to the top of everybody's TikTok uh, feeds or YouTube feeds or Facebook feeds, but instead discoverability means we have a right by way of a regulator to open up these companies' black boxes. So they have an obligation if they take down content they better explain themselves and it has to be justifiable by some kind of legal standards all right through a process to be worked out all right but the idea that we can continue on as we are is just untenable we now have the like these mass industrial factories processing human speech at scale and it is totally unaccountable by a bunch of you know to paraphrase charlie angus a bunch of billionaire frat boys from Silicon Valley. This just ain't on. Okay. And so in my fever dream of democratic regulation of the global internet giants in which Canadians get to make decisions about how their communication spaces are going to be structured so that we can thrive and have a vibrant public sphere fit for a democratic society and citizens, you know, eager to kind of participate in that democratic society we would have these kinds of accountability mechanisms, all right? They, you know, this information disclosure would be a requirement. We would get to know who builds, owns, controls, and sets the rules that frame how we talk to one another, how you talk to me right now, how I talk to your audiences, and who's on the hook if you and I cause trouble. Well, so, Professor Winsick, let me ask you this in closing. I got to let you go. We got another guest ready to rock here. But, but, in, but in closing, I mean, has, has the horse left the barn I mean, can can the federal government get a hold of this? What? Okay, I love the body language. He's shaking his head. No, but but I mean, the federal government is the federal government equipped? Can, can when we talk about things like governance legislation, even policing in a digital era, a new era, we want to know that those decision makers and those on the enforcement side understand are savvy enough to understand not only where it's where it is, but where it's going. What needs to happen, and can? If I say Canada collectively talking about elected representatives, lawmakers, can we pull it off? We could pull it off. I think we can pull it off if the government grabs some humility, goes back to the drawing board, listens to people of goodwill. And if we take some serious uh, measures that deal equally with the problem of corporate power of domestic origins, our big five Canadian players, Bell, Rogers, Shaw, Telus, and Quebecor, as much as they do the vampire squids from Silicon Valley. And finally, if we actually get a regulator with a backbone uh, and a sense of fairness that's willing to apply the rules that we come up with in a proper manner and a clear sense that it has a job to do on behalf of Canadians, as opposed to the current regulator that we have that puts the the CanCon cart before the internet and communications horse and is thoroughly captured by the domestic interest and sings from the same hymn sheet about a CanCon disfigured view of Canadian culture. Professor Dwayne Winsick uh, out of Carleton University tweets at Media Morphus. You can find his media blog at dwmw.wordpress.com. If I were to title this interview, it would be a no brainer. Billionaire frat boys and fucking Philistines. 
Professor, thank you. <laughs> Great conversation. I finally kind of sort of ish understand what's going on with C10. Yeah, I mean, kind of, kind of, sort of. I, I feel like I now have, you know, a gateway into it and uh, yeah, a better understanding of, of how it it implicates and the implications for me and, yeah. and other like just everyday folks. We didn't want to go ahead and get like Minister Gibo and then go get MP nah. Rempel Garner and then do the he said, she said, the government said, the opposition said. Uh, I love that he just cuts right through. And oh, here's man. the deal, he says, <laughs> you know, based on my understanding of this over years of study and practice and understanding and great booking. I'm, I'm glad that we had him. Real talk. Real talk <laughs> on issues that matter most. Uh, we're going to be talking about Alberta's curriculum, uh, physical education, body image in particular, in just a second. You may have noticed that there's something new in studio. And as Sarah Hoyles arrived for work today, she shrieked <laughs> as you entered the room and saw a brand new, beautiful nine foot cherry tree. <gasps> it's a cherry tree? courtesy of our friends at Eden Landscaping. We had a an audience member by the name of Lauren suggest the other day that maybe we need to get a tree in studio for you to hug. And Mike and the team at Eden Landscaping said that actually sounds like a fabulous idea. Yeah. And so after you left yesterday, the Eden Landscaping truck showed up with this beautiful tree. It's a <laughs> gift to you. It's your welcome to Real Talk gift. Really? And here's the thing. So I had a chance to talk to Mike and I said, I said, I said, take me into to what went into because they didn't just, I'm sure, willy nilly go to their supplier and grab a whatever tree. Uh, that's not how Eden works. Right. It's not how consultation works. It's not how you build these dream spaces that we always talk about. And if you're going to say, well, this sounds like a really extended uh, paid advertisement, you'd be absolutely correct. <laughs> So Mike says to me, he says, we went back and he said, he said, after Lauren was joking about how you needed a tree in studio to hug, we thought it was a great idea. He said, if any of your partners are going to hook you up, it's got to be Eden Landscape. It's got to be. So they went back and they double listened. They listened for a second time to you describing your ethos of how you've done your yard. Oh. And he said, you focused on two things that jumped out to them. Number one. You love the, the native plants, the native grasses, native vegetation, etc. Correct. He said with trees, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In a northern climate like this, he says sometimes it can get a little boring if you just limit yourself to the native trees. Mm. Loves the grasses, loves everything else. But another thing that really jumped out at them was you talking about edibles and yeah. a garden that produces and so he said the beauty with this cherry tree, they've selected it because of, of, of its hardiness in this climate. They think it fits with your ethos. And they also didn't want to gift you something that was going to grow to 80 feet tall. <laughs> I appreciate that. Because there were only a few places in a yard you could put a tree that's going to grow 80 feet tall and 60 feet wide. So this tree, he said it's going to flower. It's going to produce fruit. He said, not like dropping big apples all over the place where you're going to be cursing them forever. Yeah. Ah! Beautiful fruit. <laughs> it's going to produce. He said it's going to thrive and, and, and it's going to work wherever you choose to put it. And, and I loved it because I got to see their process in action. Yeah. I am like shockingly speechless. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? Can we can we keep it in here for a little bit? Hmm. Like I'm thinking. Give us a few weeks to just enjoy this thing before you take it and give it a permanent home. 
Huh, I don't know. She's well, we'll such, negotiate. She's such a beaut. I mean, I, I love you that. Want to take her home right away. I know. Well, Sam, with the the wide shot, how you can actually see it's like there's foliage all around me. Yeah. It's it's she's just, it's just so cute pretty. Little buds all over it. It's like I feel I'm, like we're yeah. This is. It's very close. So, so this is going to become maybe maybe the tree needs its own TikTok or maybe the tree needs its own Instagram account. <laughs> Can you imagine the real talk cherry tree presented by our friends at Eden Landscaping? <laughs> By the way, you can find out more about what Mike and his team are doing at Eden Landscaping. You can take a look at examples of what they've done for people's front yards and backyards and patio spaces and the built-in kitchens and the retaining walls and the veggie planting boxes and flower boxes and everything else at landscapeedmonton.ca. We're really proud to partner with them, as you might tell, and I love the personal touch. The welcome gift to Sarah. We're so grateful to have you on the team, Sarah. You know that. The team at Friesen Brothers wants to remind you that as you are outside perhaps enjoying the shade of your very own fruit producing tree chances are you're going to be getting behind the grill at some point in the next few days they've got you covered with your expertise there you know tongs or spatula whatever you're using in hand and their fresh alberta produce their famous sourdough bread and of course all the proteins beef pork chicken turkey tofu Tis the season and you've got the license to grill. Friesen Brothers is proudly Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned in 15 Alberta communities, including that beautiful new store in South Edmonton. We mentioned our hashtag RealTalkRJ. We're keeping an eye on what you have to say about what we've been talking about so far. It's, of course, powered by the team at Park Power. Internet, electricity, and natural gas is their game. They're big community players you can see evidence of it all over their social media we encourage you to give their instagram their twitter their facebook a follow if you use the promo code 2021 realtalk right now at parkpower.ca they're going to give you 70 dollars off your first bill again that's parkpower.ca a proud partner of all of us here at real talk well, we've taken a few days away, as a matter of fact, more than a week away from talking about Alberta's curriculum. We wanted to let everybody's blood pressure just get back to somewhat normal, ourselves included. But of course, that is a recipe for disaster. Once the public lays off the gas, then legislators continue to move forward. So we thought we'd bring you up to speed on why a researcher, the director of our body image research lab at the University of Calgary, is so concerned about this draft curriculum for kindergarten through grade six. She, along with her colleagues, penned an open letter mid-April that, as I read from before, states if I were to write a curriculum with the intent of having children preoccupied with their weight and shape it would be this curriculum the author is our guest dr shelly russell mayhew doctor welcome to the show and thanks for being here oh a pleasure to be here thanks for having me i would imagine you don't write something like that without due thought and consideration thems are fighting words what got you to that point what is it about this curriculum generally speaking before we sink our teeth in yeah, well, you know, honestly, I did look through the curriculum trying to look for positive things to comment on as well, but I had a very difficult time with that. So I think I had to take a stand and say, you know, this is not something that can be supported. So I've been studying weight-related issues for well over 20 years, and um, there there are some really problematic things in the curriculum, and there are also some things missing from the curriculum that are really important. Why don't we get into, you know what, for once... Why don't we get into the positive first? 
is is there anything here that you figure is a step in the right direction that reflects where science and research and best practice is right now? Is there, is there something here where you go, I can get on board with that? <laughs> You know, I did look, I I did try to find something to be able to comment positively on. I would say the issue with the curriculum is at first glance, it's quite deceptive. So if you just sort of glance through it, you kind of think, oh, yeah, maybe this could be okay. You know, the issue is, is that um, when you dig deep into the curriculum and look at it carefully, you know, it's um, the deception is, is that there's an absence of content that is fundamental to the well-being of our, our children. And there's a presence of content, I think, that that has been proven through research to, to do harm. So, yeah, it's difficult for me to even make one positive comment about it, frankly. Okay, well, then that establishes the tone of where this conversation should be. <laughs> it's a pretty clear wake-up call for all of us. So, So how do we begin to evaluate? The disaster. I mean, what is most egregiously uh, incorrect or wrong uh, or offensive or whatever word you might use at first glance? Yeah, so I think the curriculum takes us back about 20, 25 years in terms of the research. And we've accumulated a lot of research in terms of, you know, how do we promote health in schools? How do we make schools places where all children, teachers, staff can thrive, can be their best versions of themselves? And we have, you know, 20 years of research that would help us to figure out what needs to be in a curriculum to make that happen. And those things are not present. So... If I would to pick one, the most egregious is its lack of um, evidence-informed content. Um, And the second thing I would focus on would be is the almost exclusive focus on personal responsibility and individual behaviors in a context where the goal really should be to build a healthy school community. Uh, So it's just wrong on lots of levels. You know, you know what, you know what the critics are going to say, the, the, the reasonable, calm and credentialed critics on Facebook, uh, doctor will say, what's wrong with teaching kids personal responsibility? That's the biggest problem these days is that kids have no sense of personal responsibility. How would you counter that? Well, you know, I'd say, you know, there is a place for individual choice and personal responsibility. Of course there is, but it needs to be one of many things that we that we do in a curriculum uh, for students, particularly in K to 12. So let me give you an example. When when we uh, talk about, you know, healthy choices and uh, food portions and um food labels and good foods and bad foods, what we're doing is we're setting up this dichotomous uh, binary uh, approach to food that um, that encourages students to develop a preoccupation with their shape and weight. And we know that students who have preoccupation with their shape and size, uh, uh, regardless of their actual weight status, uh, are not as well as students who feel good about their bodies. So, you know, if this curriculum was for robots who didn't have an embodied experience, um, you know, it would check off some boxes. You know, it would, it would um, you know, at first glance, you could say, oh, check, we've done that, we've done that. You know, the issue is, is that the, the, the idea and the hope is that we create 
uh, an attunement. We help students be attuned to their bodies so that they learn how to care for them. And there is no room in this curriculum for um, to honor the experience of students in their bodies. I'm not sure that bullying. Well, actually, I already disagree with myself and I don't even have the sentence out. But, but let me say something that can be po- you can poke holes all the way through it. I was going to say I'm not sure that bullying's worse these days. I just think that it's more amplified. Uh, and I think that I, I think that things like rumors and 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 and, and attacks on people's character um, can can more quickly spread on social media programs. I guess what I'm saying is I think that people were jerks 200 years ago as well. Maybe bullying is worse these days. I'm not sure. You assert in your open letter that this curriculum could actually lead to an increase in bullying. What do you mean by that? Well, in terms of weight-related issues, uh, um, we know that in schools, the most common form of bullying is weight-based teasing. So, you know, it's still socially acceptable to comment on somebody's body. Uh, that is not written in most uh, school policies that, you know, body shape and size is sort of like a protected area that we uh, make sure that our children are safe at. So, so you know, when I talk to teachers and certainly the research would indicate that weight-based teasing is really common in school contexts. And so, you know, I think the problem with this curriculum is that it sets up um, comparisons and um, discounts uh, acceptance of all body shapes and sizes. So, for example, in kindergarten to grade one, if you're encouraging, um, you know, looking at growth through measuring mass, really what's going to happen is there's going to be height and weight measurements, which has no place in schools at all. And you're setting up this comparison between students that invites comment on other people's bodies and anyone that has difference, whether that's in height or weight or other body differences, they're going to feel um, singled out. And so the curriculum actually sets up perfect scenarios for an increase in weight-based bullying in schools. And that is not something that parents should tolerate. Uh, our our uh, real talkers, our audience members, uh, never cease to amaze uh, with their willingness to put it all out there on our live chat and, and to speak in a raw and real and beautiful and sometimes heartbreaking way. And the sharing that occurs uh, really is um I mean, it's something that that every single day drops our jaw. Emma chiming in says, I'm in my 30s and I am still trying so hard to heal my relationship with food and to vanquish those negative body image demons. This topic, says Emma, is so important. So, doctor, what should conversations look like? What would intelligent curriculum reflect or teach for kids K to six, we're talking, you know, five, six years old up to what, 11 ish? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think we want to lay the foundation to set up the possibility that students can develop a healthy lifelong relationship with their body. So we want to do things like um, approach physical activity that has nothing to do with appearance, right? So uh, we want to look at physical literacy to create joy of movement, to create confidence and competence uh, and motivation to move our bodies lifelong. Uh, Physical literacy is fundamental at this stage. We want to encourage students to become critical consumers of what they're seeing on social 
social media uh, and the kinds of bodies that we see on social media. We want to talk about food as fuel. We want to encourage students to notice how they feel when they, you know, move their bodies in certain ways. Um, so I think there are there are fundamental things that need to be in a curriculum so that you know it's possible for people like Emma to to not still be in their 30s and have this troubled relationship with their body in terms of their you know size and shape and uh, you know how they feel in their skin and you know it really concerns me this curriculum is set up to um, you know create generations of of people who are still really struggling with you know how they live in the world Doctor, what's so what's so wrong about kindergarten and grade one students uh, learning to focus on on physical growth and how it can be measured? What's what's wrong with measuring? Well, you know, when we create these binary external, um, you know, like creating, for example, fitness goals, like children should play. <laughs> you know, at this age, it, it shouldn't be about you know, somehow there, this sort of external uh, measure of, you know, whether we're being good or not being good. It should be more about, um, you know, living in your body. How do you feel when you move your body? Is it fun to go play? You know, um, did you enjoy connecting with your friends when you were playing in the schoolyard? It shouldn't be about these external things that we're checking off. Then this becomes a chore. We want to create... Um, students who like to move their bodies lifelong. And when it's just an external checkbox that, you know, is not connected to how you feel in your body, it's way less likely to be something that you're going to do later in your life as well when it's not mandated by somebody. We, we've got some really interesting comments here. I mean, these aren't necessarily going to weave together or maybe they will, but I just want to throw, you know, what some of our audience members are saying into the conversation. Karen says because of economic circumstance, there are children that don't have choices in their food and pointing this out in front of their classmates is so wrong. Uh, Deborah says bullying is way worse today than decades ago. It's the difference between smoke signals and s social media. It's mob mentality and it is so easily spread. Uh, Nadine says it, it sets up this curriculum sets up bullying of some kids and kids will have to endure it because they don't fit into norms. Um, you know, Genevieve says my daughter's heavy. My husband's entire side of his family's heavy. She's got those genes. She can't help it. Here's an interesting one. Jillian says girls have to deal with boys' sexual comments, unwanted touching, pictures being taken and shared without their consent. It virtually never occurs the other way around. Adventure Cycling says, you know, there's so much focus on competition in sport with young people. The doctors bang on with just getting out to play or just riding your bike for fun. Travis says they want to go back to the 1950s mentality about our bodies. You know, many schools, physical education curricula, learning about the body was informed by readiness to be fed into the military. That's an interesting one. And then what about this from Erica? This is the one I want to put in front of you, doctor. Erica says this is really tough because kids should never be ashamed of their bodies. But childhood obesity is a massive problem in North America. What would you say to Erica? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would put the first and last comments together. So I'd say, you know, when we set up a curriculum that says it's all about the, ch the child's choice, that is really simplifying a complex issue. So e obesity is so much more than just energy in versus energy out. And, and if we somehow train these, these, you know, young people to be robots and only make the healthy choice, um, that we're somehow going to prevent obesity. And the goal should not be about obesity prevention in a school. The goal should be about promoting health for everyone. And, um, you know, I think it's fundamental that we look at social determinants of health, you know, access to food, um, access to safe places to, to play. These uh, issues become much more complex. But if we sort of, uh, you know, move our lens out and look at the school as a community and that the health curriculum is there to support creating a healthy community for all of its members, uh, then I think we can create social and physical environments. We can create learning and curriculum. We can create healthy policies that make it so that people in diverse bodies feel like they belong in the school. And that sense of belonging is, is really foundational to learning. We talk so much, although still not enough, about media literacy uh, with adults and with young people. Uh, what does media literacy look like in the context of what we're talking about today? And what can parents do or caregivers do? Yeah, no, that's a more complex question than you think you asked. But um, so we know now, like, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, if you got a magazine, you'd see, you know, um, ideal for fe female and male forms. Now, you know, individual media is, uh, you know, it's made for you so that if you're interested in something, somehow you get this image that shows. And we are 24 hours a day exposed to these uh, forms that are not actually real because there's all sorts of filters and things that we can use. So I think being critical consumers of media is fundamental because, you know, foundationally, the, you know, the idea of comparison isn't isn't great, whether that's with your classmates because you've been lined up from tallest to shortest, or whether that's comparison, you know, of people that are supposedly your age on your media uh, feed. Um, so we really need to teach children to be critical of the images that they're seeing, um, you know, and, and to be able to, you know, really critique and uh, understand that often what they're seeing is not real and is not a reasonable point of comparison for themselves. How would you characterize? Also, oh, go ahead. I would just say you, we can't tell how healthy someone is by looking at them, right? You can't tell if someone's healthy or not just by how they look. Um, and that even at the, you know, you know, extreme ends, you know, oftentimes models, um, you have disordered eating as well, right? So um, health is not something you can just decide on by seeing someone. Yeah, there's a great comment here uh, on the live chat. A, a listener said that uh, uh, it was Ashley who said that obesity prevention and eating disorder prevention go hand in hand. Would you agree? Absolutely. I do. Uh, that's great. Thanks, Ashley. So, you know, I think so often in the field, and I work in both fields of obesity and eating disorders, and I would say until about five years ago, really working at cross purposes. So you drop in on a school and you do some kind of eating disorder prevention. Uh, and then those messages would be completely counter to the obesity prevention program coming in. And, you know, you'd be working at cross purposes. But the issue is, is that the behavior 
behavior, the health behaviors and the health environment that we can create for students in schools is something that needs, that, that is healthy for people across all weight statuses. So, you know, there, there are people who live in large bodies who have eating disorders and people who live in small bodies who have eating disorders and weight does not belong in schools. A focus on weight is harmful in schools. And so uh, we need to focus on health not wait. I've got uh, our live chats going nuts right now, which is just absolutely fantastic. People are sharing, but the, the negative side is that it means it's bumping away comments I wanted to read. So I can't credit the listener. I don't remember the name, but someone said um, this, this is re-traumatizing me. Essentially, they said this is taking me back. Uh, this is a grown adult saying this is taking me back to grade two and being weighed in front of the class. Uh, she says, I never got over uh. it. Yeah, I mean, scales do not belong in schools. They belong on fish. So uh, there should not be scales in schools and students should not be weighed in schools. Weight is not a behavior, okay? So weight is not something that should be up for behavior modification. Uh, and it certainly has no place in schools. Uh, so I think there, there's this sense somehow in, in the common public discourse that, oh, you know, that person lives in a large body. Um, they just don't feel bad enough about it yet. So I'm just going to remind them that they live in a large body. Well, you know, that person in grade two can tell you that, you know, living in a large body, you are reminded every day in all sorts of cruel and unusual ways that you don't fit in. And making someone feel bad does not actually motivate health behaviors. So oftentimes, you know, and this is, you know, no longer specific to the person who commented on that. And, and, um, I, I thank them for sharing that story because it certainly can be traumatizing the number of stories I've heard about traumatizing things in schools, whether it's being weighed in school, whether it's being the last person to cross the finish line during a mandatory mile run at school. Um, you, there's all sorts of cruel things that happen. Uh, and that can be people, you know, across all weight statuses, but certainly it's more common in students who live in large bodies. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think that there are ways to approach, um, um, ensuring that students of all shapes and sizes can reach their full potential in a school. Doctor, I'm so grateful for your time here. Um, I was just about to reread your bio and, and thank you. And then I couldn't, something jumped out at me. So I have to extend the interview by 30 seconds or, or maybe 30 minutes, depending on how you choose to answer this. But I know your colleagues, uh, members of the body image research lab who co-signed this open letter and I can't help but notice, I'll go by first names. It's you, Shelly, Danielle, Maxine, Maureen, Lisa, Elizabeth, Sally, Melissa, Janelle, and Oliver. Nine out of ten women. Should we read into that with regards to, to who's interested in the research, who's conducting the research, who, who's made this part of their career mission, their, their exploratory efforts in, in, in body image? Are, I, I feel like it's ignorant for me to ask are there gender implications because the answer is, is most likely obviously but what yes. do you read into the fact that 90% of those that signed the letter are women, if anything? Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of gender issues around uh, weight. So we know, for example, that women who live in large bodies are disproportionately disadvantaged by their weight. So, you know, as a stereotype or a generalization, you know, uh, you know, men are allowed to take up more space in the world. Um, <laughs> 
uh, which is a pretty, you know, in many ways, right? In many yeah, ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and a fair so comment. a woman in so a woman in a large body um, is often disproportionately disadvantaged. That's not to say that males don't experience weight bias or weight discrimination because of course they do. You know, I would also say in terms of body image, we've seen a, a narrowing in the gender gap for sure. But what has happened is, you know, men are starting to feel worse about their bodies to, ca- to catch up with uh, women rather than, uh, you know, the other, we'd like to see the gender gap close in other ways, not just making everyone feel bad about their bodies. Uh, but, you know, as the male ideal becomes something that's more and more narrow over time, then we have men that are for sure struggling with disordered eating and body image issues. Um, now, I would say that in terms of you know, studying these issues, the vast majority of academics that I know that study weight related issues, particularly eating disorders and body image tend to be female. And so, you know, my lab is made up of my postdoctoral scholars, my PhD and master's students, and the majority of people that study with me are female. But over the years, I would say, you know, that is also starting to change because, you know, I do have a number of uh, people who identify as male in my lab uh, working in this area as well. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we're just scratching the surface. Obviously, I'm already looking forward to talking to you again, Dr. Shelley Russell Mayhew, uh, a professor, uh, a Workland research professor and the director of the Body Image Research Lab out of the University of Calgary. Thank you for this. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Real Talkers, thank you for your candor on our live chat. Uh, Sarah Hoyle's producer here of the show has been keeping an eye on it. And I've, I've just been I've, I've been watching your sort of your facial reactions out of the corner of my eye. It's it's really amazing what, what some people are putting out here. A lot of really personal stuff and, and, and then kind of some more theoretical stuff. Like I love this from Heidi, who says my partner teaches elementary phys ed and his goal is simply to foster a love for movement. That's it. And lifelong, I think that's the piece that it's not, and I loved the doctor's point about it's not not making it a chore and a thing to check on a, like check a box, that it's truly about learning to, you know, be in your body and experience movement through space, whatever that looks like, whether it is taking a walk with the dog or riding the bike or, you know, doing your daily commute via, you know, maybe scooter or walking or biking so-called healthy choices. I mean, we, we, maybe we pigeonhole what we perceive to be healthy choices mm. and healthy choices to be different for different people. Tiana says, I've, I've struggled with weight over the last few years. Um, and, and Noom, says Tiana, and cognitive behavioral therapy has been instrumental to reframing my relationship with food and eating. People use the word relationship with food. We all have a relationship with food, don't we? You may, we may characterize it differently, but you have a relationship with it. Ashley says we don't shame people into treating themselves better. Shaming people is actually linked to higher rates of binge eating, substance use, suicidal ideation, and the like. In I mean, my in my experience, you know, it's a it's kind of a, a process addiction. The idea of um, like it fits within that realm. In my, in my experience, that it's uh yeah, an eating disorder can definitely. I mean, I I really appreciated the comment around. You know that anorexia is admired eating disorder because you become slim. Overeating is disgusting because you become fat. That's from Linda Ray. And I feel like, yeah, it's on a spectrum. It's all on the same spectrum in my mind. And this from Trevor M. Who's just Trevor's just put it all out there. Trevor M. This morning says, I tried working out at home. I lost motivation. Now I'm back to unfit and I'm ashamed of my body and I'm ashamed at my lack of motivation. But I know I shouldn't be. 
I'm from Trevor M. I, I just appreciate you sharing. I appreciate everybody. I know that some of you are going to take some time. You're going to walk with this today. You're going to be thinking about this. I'm not meaning to use all the exercise and movement and nutrition uh, comments here. You're going to walk with this. You're going to chew on this. But if you do and you have something that you'd like to share with us, our inbox is always open to talk at RyanJesperson.com. You know, it's less than three weeks now until the Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Symposium hosted by the Rural Development Network and the Rural Ontario Institute from June 1st to 3rd. Meet leaders in the housing and homelessness sector from across rural and remote Canada. The CRRHH can help connect you with exhibitors, mentors, collaborators, funders, and new ways of doing. It's one of my favorite words. By removing the need to travel, we're hoping to bring conversations that matter to you wherever you are. Your ticket gives you access to all sessions, the virtual exhibition hall and networking. Plus, you can access all recorded sessions after the event. Watch the beauty of a virtually connected community at work. And don't forget to use the code Ryan to get 20% off your registration at C-R-R-H-H.ca. That's C-R-R-H-H.ca. The team at Kubi Energy wants to remind you that their teams are hard at work in Alberta and BC right now. They're headquartered out of Edmonton with an office in Kamloops. It means they can take on residential, commercial, and industrial projects across Western Canada with their certified Tesla installers. Tesla certification plus journeyman electricians and electrical apprentices means the job is always done right when you visit kubienergy.ca. The team at Westworld Computers knows that music is a great addition to any backyard barbecue, campfire, or camping trip. That's why they're proud to carry all the audio products, brands like Beats, Ultimate Ears, JBL, and of course the one I've been talking about, Sonos. Right now you can learn more at westworld.ca about the entire home Wi-Fi audio system. Sonos truly in a class of its own. Voice control, multi-room listening, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth streaming, all-day battery life. Oh yeah, and waterproof durability. Find out more in the store or at westworld.ca. Been looking forward to talking to James Wilt for, for quite some time. Uh, based out of Winnipeg, you may have heard about his recent book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. He's also written about public transit in The Walrus, The Save to Fight Public Transit, and in Briar Patch, Free Transit, Just the Beginning. We know that transit is a hot button issue for any elected official municipal elections. It'll come into play. You watch Calgary's Green Line. You watch what they're going to be talking about in Edmonton. Look at conversations in the Maritimes or in Toronto. They're talking about micro transit. We wanted to go to the source who can help us make sense of all of this. Journalist and author James Wilt, our guest live here this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, James, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Uh, why do you care so much about transit? Does this go back to your youth? It goes back to at least my college days when I was actually living in Calgary and going to Mount Royal University. And uh, I spent a couple of years driving from the suburbs uh, and finding it horribly inefficient. And it wasn't until one day a, a classmate of mine uh, mentioned how efficient uh, a transit line can be if you catch it from a certain location. And so once I figured that out one day, I started catching, I think it was the 181. I think that was the bus line anyways. It was the express bus to Mount Royal. And I found that I could you know, go to sleep on it. I could read, I could relax. 
relax. I wouldn't have to worry about the, the stress of being in congestion, which always sent my blood pressure soaring. So it was after that that I realized um, how beneficial transit can be um, to, you know, to students, to um, workers, to all sorts of people. And so it was, that was sort of the genesis for me. So from, from then until now, uh, what have you seen with regards to, I mean, I, I'm going to ask you a question that's way too big, but I'll, but I'll rely on you to narrow it down and keep us focused. If I ask you to audit or evaluate public transit across Canada, obviously you're going to tell me you can't compare Toronto to Edmonton. You can't compare Vancouver to Lethbridge. Uh, but but how do Canadian cities cities stack up right now in your assessment? Yeah, I mean, it, a lot has changed since COVID-19 started, of course, uh, in terms of the, the big ridership and revenue losses. But in the years prior to that, um, the real standout was Vancouver in terms of its consistent uh, investments in in transit, as well as uh, Toronto. You know, I do have to caveat this by saying that um, service is certainly better in some, some parts of those cities than others. Um, but for the most part across the country, what we've seen is a lot of um, stagnation and even decline of ridership. And ridership is not the only metric of a transit system success, but it is a key in indicator of whether people are choosing to use it on a regular basis or not. Um, so what we've seen is that there has been a lot of um, flatlining of ridership, and we can see this correlate quite closely to the amount of money that is being dedicated by politicians um, to actually upgrading and, and sustaining transit service in a regular way, uh, which means that people can rely on it not only for their nine to five commute, but also for you know low wage shift workers or for people who want to get to the grocery stores or do care work for family one family members or loved ones. Um, and so you know when when we think of that in in sort of the broader context, I would say that. Um, things are not great. Uh, things are especially dire during COVID-19, as is the case for, for many, many sectors. Um, but in saying that in places like Vancouver uh, and Toronto, when we contrast to, to say the transit systems in the United States, um, there is a, a pretty clear difference between the quality of service. Um, so it is a, it's a very mixed bag, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. How, how would you characterize what defines that difference? If you take a look, like what's a, what's a great city? Would you, like Chicago with the L train or, or New York subway? What, what would you say is like a city that just has a, a shining example. Yeah, Seattle is often uh, looked to as sort of the the really great example of what happens when a, a city attempts to prioritize funding of, of transit. So that not only means rail, but it also means funding buses because buses are kind of the unsexy solution to a lot of um, transit issues. Um, but what Seattle has done is really seen these as, um, I hate to use the word, but synergistic technologies um, in which we understand that in order to um, get people to ride, you know, a light rail system, they have to get from their house uh, to the to the station itself, and that's where quality uh, bus service comes in. Um, and so Seattle is, is one good example. We looked to New York, which you know they have a they have transit ridership so large that in order to actually adequately as assess the rest of the country's transit ridership, you really need to take New York stats out of it. Um, but we've seen a lot change in recent years um, due to the hurricane, due to um, you know really protracted maintenance and repairs, um, all these sorts of things. And you know most recently we've seen a lot of allocation of funds that arguably should be going towards improving transit service. And instead of that, it's been going towards policing transit service. And so that's led to a whole bunch of issues, um, you know, not surprisingly um, over the last year or so when it comes to um, demands for rerouting um, police funding into transit service. So it is, again, really mixed bag, but Seattle would be sort of the the, the, the gleaming example, which I think a lot of people look to as what can what, what can happen if um, if you actually adequately fund transit. It's been I've, I've had so many conversations over public transit over the years. Obviously, you're the expert, but I can tell you anecdotally about about some some of the sort of the common objections, I would say, that arise and, and safety 
or or the the feeling that someone is not safe is unsafe on public transit comes up again and again and someone will take an example of a of a vicious beating on a on a train platform or of or of something occurring on a city bus and and, and saying that doesn't happen when i'm in my own private vehicle people also complain about expenditures obviously we're talking about multi billions of dollars most especially i think when cities are trying to play catch up on transit infrastructure like calgary and edmonton are trying to do right now there are concerns that that the funds are not properly allocated in other words that the technology may actually be obsolete by the time that these lines are built out and, and then there's the move we see a lot of politicians talking about what, what you describe as micro transit in, in, in other words dialing back some of the big robust networks and maybe relying more on on uh, you know things like car sharing or uber things like that now, now you've decried this you say uh selling out to transit you wrote about this in passage if people want to reference it selling out transit to ride shares will be a disaster uh, what do you make of that trend and, and why is it so concerning to you yeah so what, what we know about providing high quality transit and I, I can link back to some of the other things that you brought up um in in this response hopefully um but high quality transit is really defined by the fact that it is fixed routes that it's predictable um that people can walk out their doors and know when to expect um a, a transit vehicle to show up and also to get them where they need to go uh when they need to be in a certain place whether that is for work or a medical appointment or uh, you know a religious service or these sorts of things and so on demand micro transits demand responsive all these sorts of things. Um, they're fine as like a very um, small stopgap solution. And what they're being advertised, especially is in suburban or rural communities um, as an alternative to funding what is arguably uh, more expensive um, fixed route service. But the problem with this is that it doesn't build up a constituency of ridership because it, it is such an ad hoc um, basis. And so what happens is that an experiment or a pilot project will happen for a year or two and the transit agency will conclude that not enough people are riding it um, because that can constituency of ridership isn't built up. And as a result, they'll often um, pull out or they'll stop um, funding that project altogether. And so it's really not a long-term vision of uh, providing um, quality transit service. There's a transit planner by the name of Jarrett Walker out of the US. He wrote a fantastic book called Human Transit. And his fundamental argument is that, you know, good public transit is fu it's fundamentally about um, geometry. It's about, you know, street space. It's about how long it takes to get from A to B and fixed route buses, trains, streetcars, these sorts of things are by far the most efficient and cost-effective solution. Um, and, you know, to return to your, your previous um, points about safety, um, this is, you know, a genuine concern for people. Um, no one wants to feel, um, you know, unsafe, uh, but I think it's important to delineate feelings of feeling uncomfortable and, um, and feeling genuinely unsafe. And this has, you know, a lot to do with issues that we probably don't have the time to get into today, but I, I will point to the need to really anchor, um, you know, a progressive transit politics within a broader struggle for things like housing and harm reduction and health care and, you know, reparations to Indigenous communities and so many things that, you know, um, are what seem like they're beyond the scope of, of transit politics. Um, but I think they, they're really, really closely uh, linked. And then to the question of, you know, is this a good use of money? Um, I think the, the most important, you know, comparison that we need to make is how much is the current system costing us? So when 75 to 80% of people rely on private automo automobiles to get around, what costs are not being accounted for? And so those costs are things like greenhouse gases and air pollution, 
congestion crashes, which result in deaths and injuries to not only drivers, but, you know, pedestrians and cyclists. Um, you know, what kind of impact does it have on um, people's uh, accessibility, especially with people with disabilities or seniors who may use mobility aids? And so there's so many costs which aren't factored in when we think about this. And, you know, to, to kind of put a, a final point on it is that transit really is a solution to many of the issues that we're facing today. So if we think about climate change, even if we get more people onto a diesel bus, even if it's not a fancy electric bus, that means people are no longer relying on private automobiles. And just by the sheer efficiency of the fact that more people can ride on a bus to get from point A to point B, that's a huge climate win. And we can talk about that in the context of economic and social inequality. We can talk about that in terms of accessibility for people with disabilities. Um, but, you know, we're really spending so much money on private automobile infrastructure today, which includes roads and highways. And it's really important to contrast that with the fact that, yes, transit costs money, but transit also saves a lot of money and really improves the quality of life for a lot of people, a lot of people who currently aren't really factored into um, these sorts of equations when we think about them. James Wilt is our guest. I'm so grateful that you made such a strong point around feeling uncomfortable versus either feeling unsafe or being unsafe. You know, I think of a couple examples just to ruminate for a second. Um, These are things that have happened in our own backyard. So they're they're fresh in my memory. Um, Edmontonians, I think Albertans, I think Canadians that were paying attention to the story were outraged at the story of of uh, some folks that were experiencing houselessness being kicked out from from a transit station, a shelter, a concrete shelter. Uh, They didn't have people giving them foot massages. Nobody was bringing them mimosas. They were seeking refuge in a concrete transit shelter when it was minus 30 degrees. They were eating sandwiches that had been gifted to them by citizens, do-gooders, good Samaritans, if you will. And yet law enforcement kicked them out into the street. One of them reportedly missing shoes in frigid cold, in life-threatening cold. That's one example of how homelessness or houselessness initiatives can fit in with public transit. Who could blame somebody with nowhere to go for seeking refuge and shelter in a public facility like a transit station? I also think of another example. You know, there's a city councilor here in Edmonton that is absolutely outraged uh, at transit expansion. He bristles at the talk of bike lanes, wants to pull funding for all sorts of LRT lines and bus routes, does not believe in supporting public transit. And a big part of the populist messaging there is the lack of safety, the lack of oversight, the free for all that happens at transit stops. He furthered a video, posted a video, amplified it from his official social media account a while ago, showing a person who used drugs injecting at a transit station. Well, this same city councilor lobbies to pull funding for supervised consumption sites. And I'm not really sure why nobody's pressing him on asking him about how his views and perspectives directly conflict with one another. Your points about social services fitting into the conversation around public transit are so important. I don't have a question for you, James. I just wanted to put that out there. No, thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And this is something that I think is just, you know, just to stress that it is so important because we think about questions like um, food security or access to health care um, or, you know, the care work that is predominantly conducted by women and gender nonconforming people um, or, you know, the access to to feelings of, um, you know, just community. Obviously, this looks very different within COVID-19, but all of these things are seriously undermined by a lack of um, transit access, uh, which is not only, you know, reliable and frequent, but is also affordable 
comfortable and comfortable. And that includes for people who are, are often, you know, racially profiled because they're indigenous or black. And so, the, you know, everyone needs good quality transportation to get to the services that they need. And that is what, you know, the real promise of public transit offers is, you know, the reason that we see these things play out in public transit um, locations, whether it's bus stops, train stations, the transit vehicles themselves, is that these are these are public locations. And so what we're seeing is, you know, issues that are not being addressed in, in other uh, spheres. You brought up the issue of safe consumption sites or overdose prevention sites, which is absolutely key because the reason, like you said, you know, that people um, are electing to use, you know, substances in these locations is because they don't have any other place to use them. And so if we genuinely, you know, care about improving, you know, uh, the, the well-being of everyone, we would seek to combine transit politics with um, these other sources of politics as well, which I think is what organizations like Free Transit Edmonton, to speak of a local organization, are doing fantastically well, is that they're really anchoring their work in this broader vision of what society could and should look like. I think that's very exciting and very important because so often we can get overly fixated on the, you know, on the X's and Y's of, of you know, transit lines, which is all very important, but we really do need to frame it within this bigger picture. James, I always love seeing elected officials that are taking in the show live. I, I think it shows a certain engagement. And, and we have an Edmonton City Council right now. I'm sure you're familiar with Aaron Paquette, who's, who's interacting with our audience members. And he's talking about a motion that he just got passed uh, that will deliver a plan, he says, for predictable, sustainable funding for transit. He says it's a first in Edmonton's history. The intent is to take transit out of the political realm and into the sensible city building realm. Um, I want to tell a quick story about uh, an interview I did with Councillor Paquette, who, who I've got a lot of respect for, and I, and I quite enjoy uh, speaking with him. I giggle when I think about it because we're sitting in studio at a former radio job I had, and the councillor floats the idea publicly of free transit. And it was great. It was great for ratings. It was great for listener <laughs> engagement. It was great for Twitter. It was great for our hashtag. And then I started hearing off the record from other city councilors that were basically saying, what the fuck? Because it put everybody <laughs> in a really tough position because all of a sudden constituents and other writings were saying, oh, to my elected councilor, I quite like that idea of free transit. What do you think in the budget reality? I mean, I'm sure councilor could clarify for me here, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that Edmonton would have to find another approximately quarter billion dollars. It'd be about 225 million, I think, was the cost to make it completely free. Is this something that you think cities should pursue? And if so, who do you think should foot the bill? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question, Brian. It's certainly a passion of mine. Um, so for starters, you know, free transit is is not just a pie-in-the-sky utopian idea. There are, are many, there's over 100 cities around the world, predominantly in Europe, where they already have good quality transits, um, you know, admittedly, um, that have, you know, implemented these to various degrees. And just to give a really quick elevator pitch for why um, I think uh, eliminating fare collection is really important, is A, it, it you know, it improves accessibility um, for people who, you know, can't afford to ride transit, as we were talking about um, before the implications this has on food security and access to housing and healthcare and all these sorts of things. So, you know, just on a basic social justice level, it's very important. A second one is that it's a really important climate policy. 
uh, as mentioned before, what we need to be doing is, you know, really encouraging people through material, um, you know, conditions to, uh, you know, stop using, you know, private automobiles and to start using public transit, um, you know, more frequently. And of course, this is not just to do with affordability. It also has to do with the quality of service. Um, but, you know, uh, reducing the amount that um, one has to pay, especially um, if one is um, having to do an, a bunch of different stops throughout the day is really important. Another one I think is um, from a labor perspective. And so, you know, when we think about safety on transit, one of the biggest sources of altercations, especially between riders and drivers or operators, is around fares. And so people will um, come on board. They may be, you know, having a bad day. They may be, um, you know, for you know any number of reasons, not wanting um, to pay. And the driver's requirement to have to, um, you know, uh, make them pay um, can lead to all sorts of really um, terrible instances, including um, assaults and harassment and, and the like. And so this is another way of, you know, really trying to knit together these very struggles um, such as labor and transit and environmental politics. Um, as for who should um, pay for it, I, I think that we really do need to think about this again in the broader context of what is our current system costing us? So we think about, you know, greenhouse gas em emissions, air pollution. We think about the cost of crashes when it comes to healthcare and congestion. Um, we think about the actual private costs that it, it you know, requires to run an automobile, which, you know, anyone who has ever bought and operated a car knows full well that it can cost many thousands of dollars per year um, in, in fuel and in insurance and, you know, the actual cost the vehicle itself. And so I think in contrasting that, it becomes a really quite appealing um, alternative. And so something that I think has been really um, you know, positive, uh, if anything positive can come out of um, this terrible pandemic, is that we've seen organizations, transit unions, transit activist organizations across the country come together in a coalition called Keep Transit Moving. And what they're trying to do is um, you know, really demand that the federal government step, at, uh, step up with permanent long-term operating funding for transit services. Because what we've seen is that you know, provinces, federal governments really like to pay for the, the fancy looking infrastructure. So they like to cut the ribbon on subway stations, on electric buses, which are all good things, but ultimately those levels of government don't tend to actually fund the day-to-day -day costs of operating these transit systems. So the salaries and benefits, the materials, the fuels, the parts, these sorts of things, um, which really inhibits the ability for a transit system to expand and to provide the service that it needs. And so I think, you know, following the demands of keep transit moving for the federal government to actually step up, they recently announced a permanent uh, transit fund, um, which is, you know, somewhat positive, but, you know, once again, this is only for capital related funding. Uh, and most of it doesn't roll out until many years from now. And so once again, you know, these um, transit agencies are left without sufficient funds. And so I think, you know, Keep Transit Moving is really, um, you know, painting a, a positive vision for the, the future and what could be. Um, and so, you know, free transit would really require um, significant operating funding from the provinces, from the federal government. But I also think municipalities, which are in, you know, constrained positions when it comes to finances, they can't run debts and deficits. You know, I, I won't argue that point, but there are a lot of expenditures, um, including most notably uh, police funding, which I think would be a really positive um, transition. Uh, so we've seen throughout the last year, a lot of uh, you know, movements from across Canada, across North America and the world um, saying that we need a new vision of what it means for public safety. And so we need less funding and, you know, eventual abolition of policing. And we need reallocation of those resources to housing, to food, 
to public transit. And so this is where something like free transit can become very viable as if there is a you know, transition plan to reallocate funds um, from policing and you know, towards transit, as well as increased funding from provinces and federal government. Is this, this could become an entirely viable solution, especially when we you know, constantly contrast it with the present costs of automobility, which are simply immense. Uh, we were just talking yesterday about about, you know, proactive versus reactive measures. And, and as a society on so many fronts, um, it's how we operate. We react and we find evidence of a problem. We throw money at it as opposed to trying to get ahead of it. And so much of what you're talking about, uh, as if you don't already know this, James, but so much of your talk, what you're talking about reiterates uh, the role that public transit plays in the health of a city and the health of. Of its citizens. I mean, I, I want to credit Councillor Paquette, who's continuing to interact with our audience members here. He's I appreciate that. He says free transit could happen with federal assistance, but we need to improve transit first. He goes on to say, but our transit system returns over two billion dollars annually. He's just talking about Edmonton, uh, two billion uh, to the city and economic benefits across the board, infrastructure, greenhouse gas, increased health, employment benefits, etc. James, we want to respect your time, but I, but I have to ask because it makes sense. I mean, the, the jumping off point of this conversation was how different Canadian cities have been impacted on the transit front by the pandemic. What sort of a lasting or residual impact do you think this let's call it a two year window? I'm going to be optimistic and I'm going to say, well, hopefully we'll be through all of this into the fall, the winter. Who knows? But when we look back on the impact that, the you know, these two years ish will have on public transit. Uh, is there a is, is there a, a pro and a con? Is is there a positive and a negative? Are you able to look at it that way? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thank you, Council Paquette, for um, uh, for mentioning those those facts. I, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So what we have seen is is a really devastating impact on transit systems across Canada. So there's Statistics Canada um, data that came out a couple of years ago, and it was looking at February 2021 uh, ridership and revenues in comparison to a year earlier. And um, even though, you know, we various provinces have, have reopened and people are you know trying their best to get back to some sense of normality um, transit ridership remains 71 percent below um, covid levels or pre-covid levels rather and so that's a difference of 115 million trips every single month and obviously because of the heavy reliance on fare revenue it's usually between 40 and 60 percent of a transit agency's revenue that has meant a catastrophic impact on um, you know the, the ability for a transit system to to fund itself, and so um, excluding subsidies, stats can reported that um, operating revenues remain below 69% uh, below uh, pre-COVID levels, and so that's a difference of 240 million dollars every single month. And the response by transit agencies, um, you know, at the start of COVID, but also during, was mass layoffs and service cuts. And so this was devastating for a very specific reason that we know um, uniquely uh, from COVID-19 that in order to reduce transmission risks, we have to be able to, so, to physically socially distance. And so that means um, six feet, masking, all these sorts of things. Um, but what this, uh, what these service cuts and mass layoffs resulted in um, was for the people who continue to need to ride uh, transit, which is predominantly low-wage shift workers, um, is that they were more overcrowded than ever before. And so this becomes an immense deterrent to people who you know, may be in a financial position to uh, buy their own vehicle or to use ride-hailing services such as Uber. Um, and they're really 
as a major, major question mark about what the future of public transit is. When I wrote my book, you know, at the start of the book, I talked about how, uh, you know, the U.S. had seen 6% ridership decline over several years. And I, I labeled that as a crisis, as many transit planners and analysts were. But what we're seeing is 75% decline. So this is unprecedented. I, I know that's a very cliche word for COVID-19, but it truly is unprecedented. And so the question becomes now is how governments are going to respond to this. Because on the one hand, you know, to speak of the negatives, is that they can continue to um, fund transit as they, they always have, which is to say not very much. The provinces and the federal government can continue to fund capital costs and, um, you know, that transit can continue to um, basically spiral uh, and people can continue to, um, you know, elect for, for other options as, as they can. Um, so that's a really negative um, vision because what that will mean is more greenhouse gases, more air pollution, more congestion, more crashes, less accessibility for people with disabilities and seniors. Um, but the positive vision, and this is what I think the real, um, you know, promise of something like free transit in conjunction with high quality service, as Councillor Paquette mentioned, is using this as an opportunity to demonstrate that transit agencies' heavy reliance on fair revenue is not sustainable. Because as soon as a transit service encounters any sort of um, problem, whether it's pandemic related or, or something else, um, it becomes, it turns into this vicious spiral where funding uh, is reduced and then as a result, um, service is reduced and then people stop riding it and then it just continues to spiral on and on. And so I think, you know, uh, the, the, the dual demands of um, eliminating fares, uh, but also radically improving transit service, which means improving frequency um, and, uh, and uh, coverage and all these sorts of things. Um, is, is a really, uh, it's, it's highly, you know, possible as we've seen in many, um, you know, countries around the world, like, you know, entire continents are knitted together by very sophisticated transit services. And what we're facing in North America is a fairly unique problem where, you know, governments have just chronically decided not to fund transit. So we can look to Latin America, we can look to Asia, we can look to, you know, Europe, and there are some really strong examples of how beneficial investing in transit service can be. And so, you know, the hope, or I think the demand of, of a lot of organizations is that, you know, governments throughout Canada recognize that, and as you were saying, recognize the health benefits, recognize the climate benefits, um, recognize that this is what is required to build a, a genuinely just and sustainable city. Because at the moment, you know, as long as people continue to, um, you know, re, you know, rely on, on private automobiles, this crisis is only going to get um, worse and worse. Um, so, you know, I, I hopefully I, I uh, successfully balanced, you know, the, the negative with the positive, but um, uh, you know, at this stage, things are not looking great. But you know, as as movements and, and unions and indigenous communities continue to struggle for this, I, I really um, think that we'll see uh, improvements going forward. James Wilt's book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber and Elon Musk. You can read his recent piece at readpassage.com. Selling out transit to ride shares will be a disaster. If you want to follow him on Twitter, I link to his account from the tweet I send out every morning just before the show at Ryan Jesperson. James, thank you so much for this. I could listen to you talk for three hours. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. You got it. That's James Wilt. Good stuff. I, I suspect and, and, and this is almost unfortunate in, in doing a show like this where it's called Real Talk. And we, we almost need the, the naysayer. We, we need we need the producer in studio that's going to say public transit is, is is a moronic idea. It doesn't pay for it costs way too much. We need to slash costs. We need to cancel LRT expansion. But I already know where you two hippies are going to land on this. I already know we're all three going to align on this. Aren't we? It's going to be a boring conversation. Yeah, I mean, I have the tree over here. 
I am. I should, I should ask you to jump up and hug it every time you give the. Yeah, exactly. But see, I don't want to. You know what I was thinking about this in all seriousness? Mm. Um, I'm afraid that you're going to get the reputation as the tree hugger. Yeah. When I've worked for years and years taking shots from big oil to ask my fellow Canadians to balance perspectives on energy, the environment, and the economy. Mm-hmm. I too want to be a tree hugger. I do not I want share. you to corner the market on hugging trees in the Real Talk studio. There's a lot of trees to go around, you know. There are a lot of trees. I could be. I could become sort of the the, the, the plant. I could. I could nestle myself in the plant here, and find, well, Sarah gets to hug the tree. What do you make of what James said, though? I mean, there, obviously, he put a lot in front of us. The guy's brilliant. He, I, yeah, I mean, he he can say it way better than I can, um, and he has the research to to back it up and the, the knowledge base. But I would say something that kind of didn't reach his radar or he didn't mention was the idea that you know how much our costs actually are kind of hidden costs, and so when we look at you know infrastructure, and infrastructure is like a big fancy word for roads. Like when we look at roads, what is the cost for road upkeep? And that is something that is shouldered by municipalities and the province. So we look at, you know, (laughs) tolls are very unpopular, but where do those costs then get covered? It's in taxes. So to say that, you know, it's cheaper to, to ride a car, sure, out front, the initial costs appear to be cheaper less to drive that personal automobile but really when it comes down to it how much of your taxes are going toward towards roads and i mean to be hyper local looking at the yellowhead there's a huge expansion happening on one of the kind of roads that is a major artery in the city and it's billions and it's going to i mean there's something that's referred to as oh shoot now i can't remember it induced demand is that the word is that the term i gotta check it out i'll check it out but ultimately what it is is you build a road then you expand the road sure it's going to it is induced demand um you build the road and then all of a sudden within a year maybe even less it's full well that's like the anthony Hande in edmonton that's precisely we just keep expanding keep expanding yeah and more cars just keep showing up because we are encouraging it's like what do you invest in what do you put your money towards and if we're encouraging ridership on public transit then there should be as james spoke about you know more routes more frequency no fares or lower fares versus going and looking at widening some road uh, some interesting comments here on 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 uh, the live chat I, I i've lost one of the comments but someone basically said i think that this starts with the kids you know, I think that if that free transit first would be most attractive to younger people who would then kind of grow into it, set an example, and then you start to impact kind of generational change, which is oftentimes how things happen across the board in conversations about everything from, geez, nutrition and body image to pronouns to whatever. I mean, young people oftentimes, I think, are showing the most leadership um, with regards to where a society trends. and Why would public transit be any different? It's, it's a conversation about values. right? It's, it's what we value. Absolutely. But I think that's also kicking the can down the road, being like, ah, the kids will take care of it. No, no, no. No, no, no. We're saying who's going to use it. Mm-hmm. If we do it right now, yeah. who's most going to use it? Who's most going to benefit from it? And, and I think that, mm, um, yeah, l- let, me use, let me use myself as an example. Um, you know, real talk. Um, am I going to take transit all over the city right now? No. Number one, because I'm not inclined to, right? It's, it's a mentality 
Um, I have a bike. I have a longboard. I like to walk the dog. So it's not that I'm married to my vehicle, but I'm not inclined to use transit. Why? Number one, because it's simply not convenient where I am. And that's the biggest barrier. I don't have an ideological barrier against public transit. I mean, I love this from AB that says I rode the bus all throughout my childhood and well into university. My single mom didn't drive and having decent bus service literally helped lift us out of poverty. I mean, that's a powerful thing to say from, Abs- from AB. Absolutely. And that's I think that's the point that it's not about having for every Edmontonian public transit isn't going to be used by every Edmontonian every single day or or every Calgarian or every, you know, resident of Toronto or Vancouver. That's not the point. It's about who who are these who can use it? Yeah. Who is it available to? And the essential workers, I mean, the pandemic has just really underscored you know, the in- inequality and that these types of services are vital. Sam, are you inclined, like when you're, you know, making plans with friends or whatever? I mean, let, let's let's say we're not talking COVID. Let's just say we can remember to what it was like before and we can look forward to what it's going to be like again. How, how does how does transit factor into your your decision making or your psyche? Oh, huge. Um, yeah, I'm a I mean, like sort of writ large for like a night on the town. Um my go-to is usually transit there, cab back, depending on what time it is. Okay. If it's early enough, I'll take transit back. But it's just, it's a way to avoid driving. It's a way to just get exactly where you need. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you know Edmonton's layout, I live in Westmount, Inglewood Place area. It's, uh, you know, I jump on the five and I'm downtown in 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Like, it's not hard for me to get into the core but that's something that would be like a regular go-to for you you would utilize it on a regular basis a lot of times for a night out we go we go to transit because we don't want to be chained to our cars yeah yeah it's a great point um lalazaz says public transit is only an urban issue um which is an interesting comment um it's probably not just an urban issue i don't know i mean are, are things exclusively urban or rural issues i don't know well I mean, you look at the there's the the transit system that links banff canmore and the kananaskis yeah. area and they've actually teamed together to make it so the ridership can can go between even lake louise so it's it is used to to shuttle no pun intended or intended no full-on intended shuttle people around i just want to interject one little thing and i actually bought my most recent home on the LRT line that's coming on in uh, in Edmonton that's going that's why you bought it there yes now a lot of other people have are like get me out of here well, yeah I mean <laughs> totally. more right? room for those of us that want to live there uh, yeah but you, you can't as a politician say that <laughs> so you can <laughs> well you can you just you know, never get, I, you never I would get elected as a politician again. yeah well you wouldn't be a politician for long if transit's going to be disrupted suck it up snowflakes uh, Okay, one-term counselor Samuel G. Brooks. <laughs> yeah, until you start taking it and you realize how good it is. So, and then I don't it know. supports local business. Exactly. And like if it, you if you build the community that transit supports, people will like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at a lot of people that have made investments around where transit is supposed to be, and it hasn't happened. A lot of people have been left waiting for years. Other people have. It's it's a big important conversation. I'm really glad. I think James Wilt is an amazing guest. To, to, to enter in and give us about a million things to think about. I'm really grateful for it. Uh, wanted to remind you that Athabasca University, we've been talking about this PowerEd initiative. You can find more at powered.ca. We talked about Digital Wellness Day on Friday. It was a great roundtable. Speaking of things to think about and, and walk with, they've got these on-demand, online kind of short professional courses and certificate like a professional course that could take two or three hours not three two or three weeks or two or three months 
You could learn about things like leadership, allyship and inclusion, artificial intelligence and machine learning, digital transformation, and a whole lot more. I mean, it's really, really, this is where adult education and online learning is going. The on-demand element, you have to check it out. You can better yourself at powered.ca. Complete courses in your own time at your own pace at powered.ca. We also wanted to give a shout out to the team at Local Waste. I don't have to tell you they love to talk trash. They love trash talk so much they sponsor it here on the show. I can't even say those two words without getting into this mindset, this mentality. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can say it's like a it's like just a switch flicks. You can send in your email, your rants, your raves, your gripes, what's grinding your gears to talk at RyanJesperson.com. And we wrap up our broadcast week every week with Trash Talk presented by the team at Local Waste. Are you a business locked in a contract with one of their competitors? They can coach you on how to limit cost increases with your current provider, and they can help you navigate through the frustrating process of canceling a waste service contract. I absolutely love that their advertising includes the public pronouncement. They can help you get out of contracts with their competitors. It's how they're making business make more sense for you at localwaste.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Northwest Fest. It is Canada's longest running nonfiction documentary film festival. You know how proud we are at Real Talk to be presenting the Global Visions film series at Northwest Fest. Well, this year, obviously, they're not packing the house at the typical cinemas. We love it. I miss the smell of pop popcorn. I miss my shoe sticking to the floor. We'll be back there in previous years. But right now, 40 feature films, 40 short films, all available to anybody all the way through till May 16th. You got five more days to check it out. Some of these are world premieres. Plus, later this week, is that tomorrow, Sarah? White Noise? Or Thursday? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's tomorrow. That's tomorrow. Thursday is our hunting and sustainability and food ethics conversation, which is going to be mind-blowing and amazing. I can't wait for that. Tomorrow, we'll talk to the team behind White Noise, which is the definitive explosive chronicle of the rise of the alt-right, as told by its most high-profile figures. Of course, you can check out that. Plus, end the line, end of the line, the women of Standing Rock. Or what about I, Human? A film, a real-life thriller that shows how the most powerful and far-reaching technology of our lifetime will change our lives, our society, and our culture. I could honestly talk for an hour about the films they're screening. Go check it out yourself right now. Tickets available at northwestfest.ca. Thursday's going to be big. I've seen some of our panelists, our, our hunters, and our, our journalists, and our producers, um, you know, food producers, I'm talking ag producers, they're starting to promote on their own social media channels mm-hmm. that they're going to be part of this extended conversation Two back to back roundtables, plus lots of breathing room, uh, because we know we're going to be getting a lot of emails ahead of time. We know we're going to be getting a lot of tweets uh, to the hashtag Real Talk RJ. Um, we have yet really to do this is going to be for the most part, unless I'm forgetting, uh, I think this is going to be our first themed show from start to finish. We're not talking anything else. 
it's very cool. It's a pilot, so it's like you know, guess and test. Let's let's check it out. Yeah. What are you? What's one of the? I mean, we're going to talk about hunting, and we'll we'll talk about the difference between uh, hunting for food, you know, uh, hunting to feed your family, uh, to feed a community, and hunting for sport. Mm. Um, I, I imagine we'll talk about things like trapping. I know that we're going to talk about plant proteins. We're probably going to talk about dairy versus things like almond milk and and oat milk and all the other. Uh, what do I say? Milk substitutes. Yeah. Is that what you call them? Nailed milk, it. Milk substitutes uh, we'll, we'll talk about all sorts of subject matter is there something that you're looking is there like a i don't want to call it a curveball but is, is is there is there something that you're intending on ensuring infusing you know that it infuses itself into the conversation i mean we we're not wanting we're really wanting to bring a whole bunch of different perspectives to the table so definitely having a variety of voices and interests <laughs> Um, and dip people in different lanes. So uh, one person I'm really excited about hearing from is Jeff Singer. And he actually yeah. does uh, food production. Was he an accountant? Is that what it was? He worked in finance, if I remember correctly. And then he just was like, eh, he I'm decided, out of here. He and his family decided to buy an abattoir, like a slaughter, like a small independent slaughterhouse, basically. And he totally, his entire life just changed. And his Instagram is is haunting in a beautiful way i he it's like that nature is metal account sam that i was i was talking about a few weeks ago on instagram nature is metal where where every day you are forced to confront the realities of nature yeah um like like a hyena taking down an ibex and you feel bad for the ibex but then you remember that the hyena has to live and feed it's its its hyena pups and you get you have to confront all these things all these sort of things that are tough to watch and it's a graphic account and 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 singer's instagram along the same lines but like with heart and nuance and like it's a really informed perspective around what it takes to do food production yeah and so he and he's not uh, precious about it which i also love like he's it's so unique um and unique kind of downplays it he's just it's one of a kind it's i like it because he forces us to think let me let me yeah. do this on the fly i want to read this one because this is uh let me share my screen here oh are you doing the i'm gonna do the the, the crippled calf oh because i want to get let I me mean, let's let's cut the bs you're gonna, you're let's get right this. to it you're well, gonna do this. so here's one of is gonna be one of our panelists on thursday oh. and i'm just gonna read this and i'm gonna read it he, he he writes it with a real lack of punctuation because i think he wants it delivered like this i stream hope of consciousness i hope i do it justice his stream of consciousness so look at this calf uh, apologies to those that are listening to the podcast. You can imagine a, a cute young calf, just just days or weeks old, and, and its front legs are kind of they're kind of off kilter a little bit. And Jeff writes, sometimes on small farms, often run by old people in their eighties, there are calves born that are screwed up. This is one of those calves that our elderly neighbor asked if we would take from him to try and keep it alive because he'd been feeding it for its first two weeks, but he was running out of time because he has a hundred more cows to calves. So we did because that's what you do. We have four kids at home, but it made me think about city kids and elderly country cow-calf operators, and we need a Tinder for orphan calves, but nobody actually cares. They just say they do, and then, I don't know, go on Tinder and skip the dishes, and these calves just get shot and thrown into the bush. 
But like before anyone goes running around trying to get a crippled calf that matches their handbag, know that they often don't make it and they do crap, mostly liquids. And I think even the very small helpless livestock are illegal in the cities and your kids really only know the fictionalized deaths of humans from movies and stuff. But watching a little calf struggle and possibly does it might turn them into serial killers. I don't know. I'm afraid I do so much death. I don't even have a frame of reference anymore. But there are people very, very upset because their favorite gym is closed and their biceps have been their reason to live. And now they feel meaningless. But there are these calves all over the place that you need to lift and do physio with never mind that from jeff singer and he's one of our panelists and he's one of our panelists on thursday along with others uh we're going to talk about adult onset hunting we're going to talk about the ethics of food production food waste i'm really really looking forward to it white noise is coming up tomorrow on wednesday as well can we talk about what the question is this week you want to get it? Yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't we go to RyanJesperson.com as we speak? Our question of the week presented by our research and strategy partners. I just at want y people Station. to get like have the most chance, the longest window to be able to. I want to hear because I, I love this. It's a big question. I love it's it. a simple question. I tweeted this out yesterday. It's a simple question, but it's not simple at all. And that is who do you trust? It's an important question in many ways. It shapes our lives. Regardless of the kind of year it's been, there are some positions and people who we measure the value of by the trust we put in them. We ask you about people, professions, and then, of course, some specific people whose trust we want to measure. And I think it's going to be really, really enlightening. Can I? I mean, there's been one of the individuals on that list, if I'm not mistaken, that's been in the news, you know, Because she said that she was just so desperate over the pandemic that she's been forced to eat bread. Gwyneth Paltrow. Ooh. So that's just a just a taste. (laughs) Forced to eat bread. First of all, great band name. (laughs) I I would the, the album title sourdough. Oh yeah And then rye bread Oh what an even No hang on a second The band has to be called Sourdough Starter And then the album Can be forced to eat bread (laughs) And then we'll call it Like the upper crust tour Keep going Why are you stopping now Lead song Butter me up (laughs) Closing song First encore On the rise (laughs) Yeast through the pandemic No I don't know what I'm I need you I need you. We ask how uh, people. That was amazing, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I can see you're going. I'm going. We're going. Mm, yeah, we're going to come up. You know what's going to happen we're is all after, in pun mode right now. After after we sign off and say goodbye to every for the day, then all of a sudden we're going to start thinking of them. Yeah. We're going to start thinking of. We're going to say we had a slice. Uh, you know, we're going to have all these. Um, so, so our question of the week asks, you know, the trustworthiness. We have some media personalities in there. We have some business leaders. We have some political leaders. Uh, and then we ask you about, like, for example. You know, one to ten, least to most trustworthy, you know, your dog, your acquaintances, your grandmother, your close friends, your best friend. I mean, we get into it. And I think that the, this is going to be a really great uh, insight into where real talkers are at. It's also probably worth mentioning that um, our Patreon supporters, you know, via Ryan those that support us on a monthly basis. Thank you via our Patreon. Also receive exclusive access to the top line reports from these. So oftentimes like 12 to 18 pages of data curated, sorted through, sifted through. It's fascinating insight into typically more than a thousand people. Our Patreon supporters are also going to have first crack at our Real Talk merch, which is now 
in-house, my friends. The Real Talk Coffee Mug, Ryan Jesperson here on the back, keeping it real since 2020. We've got lids. That's right. We got caps. We got shirts. They're all soon going to be up for purchase at ryanjesperson.com, but they will first go in front of our patreon supporters we're gonna have a couple of days head start before everybody else because i think it's gonna sell out you can learn more about our patreon at ryanjesperson.com i wanted to get to a couple emails before we go because we ask you to be in touch with the show and you do an amazing job and what good is an email inbox if we never dig into it this one from jenna who wrote in yesterday and said genetic counseling is a key part of genetic testing she was moved by our conversation yesterday with Dr. Mikolai Rasik, who's one of the stars of the May edition of Edify magazine, is one of the innovators. And, and Jenna said, I was so excited to see genetic testing make it on as a topic on Real Talk. It's fascinating and it's so important that our understanding grows as genetics or our study of genetics evolves and more and more people are able to use this knowledge to help guide their medical decisions. She says Dr. Rasik's passion for the potential the field has really shone through a few years ago. Uh, Jenna says, I wrote an article uh, for his company's blog, in fact, about genetic counseling and the important role that it has when considering genetic testing. And she says, I was somewhat shocked. And see, these are why these emails are important, because people will circle back people that know and say, hey, you guys missed a, a big element of this. And oftentimes, you know, Sarah's going to write it down and it's going to fuel a further exploration into the subject. So, Jenna, we really appreciate this. She says, I was shocked that genetic counseling wasn't mentioned at all in your conversation yesterday. Jenna says, well, I'm not a genetic counselor. I do hope someday to become one. But as somebody with a relatively decent understanding of the issues, I must say, if you're going to bring on someone with private interest in genetic testing, I implore you to bring a genetic counselor on as well. They're health professionals with specialized training in medical genetics and counseling. They're skilled at communicating complex information of the medical, psychological and familial implications of genetic contribution to disease. It would ensure, Ryan, that the Real Talk audience is truly appreciating the complexities of genetic testing and getting a fair and balanced understanding of the issue. Your trust in this show is important to us. Genesis, I, I recently completed a course about genetic counseling uh, taught by the lead genetic counselor at the U of A's hospital, Sajid Merchant. Uh, the course discusses ethical issues in the field. Many of them were touched on in your podcast but I was bursting with comments to add as I as I listened. She said, we need to talk more about Canada's genetic non-discrimination law. We need to talk more about genetic testing of minors. We need to talk about bringing genetic testing to the office of every doctor. We need to talk about genetic predispositions for many conditions. The fact that they're based on the cumulative effect of many individual genes but the development of these conditions also depends on environmental factors, which the doctor did touch on yesterday. Jenna goes on to say, I promise you that I am only touching the surface of the complexities here. Decisions around genetic testing have many personal, social and ethical considerations. And she says, I'm afraid to say the discussion on your podcast did not do it much service. We don't mind the criticism. We don't mind you holding our feet to the fire. We invite it. And we appreciate it. She says, it's not the fault of your guest. He had many important things he wanted to share. It may have been a casualty of the time limit. 
says, I ask you to please find a genetic counselor that can come, uh, come provide some balance to the conversation. Thank you for having a discussion on this on your show. Keep up the great work. That from Jenna. Jenna, thank you. And we will. And I'm just going to pass this through the plexiglass, Sarah, and then we can give it to you there. We'll go ahead and get a genetic counselor booked. We also got this email from Tom. This will bring our conversation full circle today because Tom's, well, quite frankly, he's irate about the comments from Alberta's justice minister. Uh, I touched on them off the top of the show. If you just joined us live and you missed it, here's the deal. Basically, Alberta's justice minister, Casey Madu, asserts that the NDP provincially, the federal liberals and the media wants to see health care in crisis. They want to see hospitals overwhelmed. I mean, it's obviously a ridiculous comment. I'm not going to spend much time explaining why members of the media don't want to see people dying on ventilators. But let me give Tom the floor. Tom says, I'm writing to express my extreme disgust about the minister's comments, the Facebook comments, where he claimed that the media, the NDP and the federal liberals want Alberta's healthcare system to collapse. It's disgusting commentary from anyone, let alone an elected official, let alone a minister. I'm kind of slipping into the trash talk voice. I'll try to rein it back 10 percent. He says the justice minister and the premier have both said they don't want the pandemic to be politicized. And then we hear comments like this. It's atrocious. It's reprehensible. Tom says that to me is a call for instant resignation. The comments prove the minister doesn't care about this province worth of people. And it's not the first time. I've seen him lie about the fact that just 35% of people in fair deal panels wanted Alberta's own police force, yet the ministers claimed it's a majority. He spent $2 million tax dollars to study it and to promote it. Says he's actively worked, as confirmed by multiple police chiefs, to ensure that public health measures were not enforced, leading to people breaking health regulations, which is one of the many reasons why we're experiencing this spike of COVID and are back into yo-yo restrictions again. He says the minister is not fit for elected office, let alone this position as minister of justice. The comments show a lack of maturity and a lack of trust on my part. You are supposed to represent all Albertans as a minister. Instead, you not only insult the public with your comments and your previous mistruths, you're putting in the media, you're putting the media in danger as you're promoting that they want to see the healthcare system collapse. Some minister of justice writes, Tom, I expect a full apology to the people of Alberta, the media, and I'd like to see a resignation. Premier, is this really how you want a minister to behave. It's not the first time we've seen a minister act up, yet I am fairly certain you will defend the justice minister because you yourself cannot admit or accept responsibility. Reprehensible, disgusting, dangerous, calloused, and supremely deplorable. These comments were, Alberta deserves much better. That from Tom. Keep the emails coming. If you'd like to provide the other side to this debate, I encourage it. I'd love to read it. But in all seriousness, we do want to hear your thoughts on everything you're hearing here on the show. Let me close by reminding you that if you're looking to get outdoors, that trailer, you can't stop staring at it. But you know that you've been risking it on the highway. You've been risking it, loading up your SUV. You're pulling this thing wet. You got the coolers in there. You got the kids' bikes. You got some firewood. You got a couple of jerry cans. And you know that if you have to hit the brakes or if this trailer starts to move... That 15-year-old SUV of yours might meet its maker. Albertans trust Ram trucks like nobody else. The three-time winner of the Motor Trend Truck of the Year 
right now ready to be viewed. The half ton, the three-quarter ton, and that beautiful 3,500 one ton at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Selection of Ram trucks right now, not great. You try to find a pickup in the province of Alberta right now, best of luck. The good news is the best selection of the limited selection is that these two dealerships, plus they share their inventory. Check them out online today via the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Our thanks to Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. As mentioned, tomorrow we're going to get into it. We're going to be talking to ICU Dr. Darren Markland, another innovator featured in Edify. We're going to learn more about that plan to introduce user fees into Alberta's provincial parks, the Kananaskis in particular. And as mentioned, the team behind the documentary White Noise at northwestfest.ca. Plus, your tweets, your emails, and more all coming up. We'll talk to you soon.